This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Trying to put on the show. The Seahawks hunting for a chunk of the preseason. They had 31 players who did not play in Saturday's preseason opener against the Las Vegas Raiders. It's the fourth most of any team in the league. Their first unit offense did not play a snap. Is that the right approach for this team? They're punting. They're not punting on fourth and short at the opponent's 39-yard line, though. Not yet. Give them some time. Once we get into them, pin them back in there and play some field position. Because Patrick Mahomes and some of the other first-team offenses of the league have actually played in some Usually of these they play games. A series. Usually they play a series. Right. That's, that's generally been the approach. And I'm not sure what Pete's approach will be this week when they play Denver at home. I'm not sure if he'll take that. But he's usually, it's generally been the offenses out there for a series. 2019, Russ did not play in the first preseason game. I'm not sure if we're going to see Russ this preseason. I don't think this would be an issue at all if they had not installed a new offense with a first-time offensive coordinator. The preseason is one of those times of year where everything is vanilla, simplistic. You'll hear all sorts of cliches said about it, but generally you're not seeing teams throw their extremely complex offensive or defensive schemes at one another out of paranoia that someone's going to be able to figure them out. So from that perspective... It's a one-chance-a-year one you have to surprise people, right? It's the season opener. Yeah. If you, if you, if you hide things, you can, you can hide the things that you've been working on or the wrinkles that you've installed specific for that season. It's your one chance to have a surprise. And they're saying to themselves, we're going to keep that surprise inside the packaging I do feel like it could be wasted reps. I don't want to make too much of it. And I kind of get why they have it, Danny, because of what happened with Stone Forsyth at left tackle in the preseason opener. I mean, based off of what we've seen at training camp, that's the guy that's been working because of Dwayne Brown's absence and because of some injuries to Cedric Obwehi at left tackle. You don't want Russ to die. If Obwehi or Jamarco Jones is ready to play this week, we're not going to see Dwayne Brown in the preseason. Nope. I, that's that's pretty much already been established. And Pete had said, "Hey, even even if he was if he was practicing, he wouldn't have been playing anyway." If if one of those guys would you, would you rather see Russ out there for at least a series? And in 2019, he did play in the second preseason game after missing the first one. Or is this a new era in the NFL? Sean McVay has probably been the most adamant about this. Of like, I'm not playing anybody meaningful on my offense. I, I'm not. I and that's he's done that for years. Did that with Goff. Did that with Gurley. I'm not playing starters. I'm not getting anybody that means anything hurt in the preseason. Doesn't seem like it's been a problem for McVay. And if it hasn't been a problem for him, even with the quarterback that we just talked about and Jared Goff, who's not that good, then yeah, maybe this is the way that things have to be done going forward, or just is the smartest way to do things going forward. I'm someone, Danny, who would like to see the Seahawks have joint practices. I feel like those are more useful than preseason games. It's harder games. for Seattle because they're so isolated, though. Yeah, I, mean, you, I understand you, that. You might, as well, you might as well travel for a game, right? Right. If, if you're going to have – because there's nobody that can really drive to it. The like, closest team is the 49ers, too. Do you really want to have joint practices with a no. division rival? No. No. I, Denver would probably be the, the one that's most likely, or the yeah. Raiders. You want to go mess with the Raiders after what happened? Them send corner blitzes? <laughs> yeah. 
you're right. That would be a substitute. And I think if most coaches had their preference, they would be able to do that. I have zero problem with them with them sitting everybody. I, I don't I don't really care. I don't know what you get out of a quarterback who's ten years this is gonna be his his ninth year in the league. I'm not sure what you get out of having him go out there and even with the new offense run through things. I, I think that anything that you gain from that would be counteracted by, well, if you're running through things that that are new to him, you're going to be showing those new things to the opponent. I do wonder about that paranoia, though. I do think at some point these NFL coaches need to stop acting like they are holding the secrets to creating a nuclear bomb. We're talking about offense here, and certain offenses are going to be good no matter if the defense knows what could potentially be coming. Are surprises against the Indianapolis Colts in week one really so important to you that it's going to cost you the rest of the year? That's the one argument that I would make against it is that I just think NFL coaches are very paranoid and I think just think too much when it comes to this. I don't, I, I don't think much advantage would be gained by showing a couple of plays to another team. They still have to stop Russell Wilson. If this was another quarterback, that's another thing. But we're talking about one of the best in the game. Tony Romo basically ended his career in a preseason game. That is true. Against the very Seahawks. Cliff Averill with a with a tackle, and then Romo was hurt. And by the time Romo was healthy, Dak Prescott had that job in a chokehold to the point where Tony said, hey, I'm not coming back as a starter. Also, the 206 saying, get Tebow now. <laughs> Another from the He's 206. He's available. Danny Gino is out. Bring in Tebow. Tim Tebow has been let go. Pour one out for Tim. I don't know if it's fair. I don't know if it's fair to have a guy changing positions and make a decision on him based on just one game. I don't know if Tim Tebow got a fair shot in Jacksonville. Yeah, I don't either, you know, because he should have been given an opportunity to be the starting quarterback, seeing as he and Urban Meyer won a national title together, you know, and got to another one, uh, too, where Tebow didn't play that much. I mean, he's just a winner. What are the good things that can happen from giving your first team offense reps? Because the argument that you're saying, Paul, is it doesn't matter if they know what we're going to run. We're just going to run it better execution wins and we're confident in what we're doing and if it we can tell you the play that we're going to run and we should be able to run it well enough well, what are the what are the things that you could gain by by running through your regular offense with your starters well i i think some offensive line cohesion and it's one thing to do it obviously in practice but it's another thing to do it in the game the problem is because of injuries i, I don't know that that's actually a possibility for the seahawks this preseason so that's actually another argument against putting your guys out there because it's not just Dwayne Brown. I mean, we're not sure what's going on with Ethan Posick. We're not even sure if Ethan Posick is necessarily going to be the starter at center going into the year based off of some of the chatter. So maybe from the offensive line perspective, but also from a wide receiver perspective, okay, well, there's new terminology. There are new routes. Mm-hmm. Is it really going to be that no, but those are the things that those those would be the those would be the advantages that you you get to put guys through those paces, and if practice didn't mean anything, they wouldn't spend three days a week out there practicing. What are the things that you would give up? What are the things that you are risking? Injury is probably first and foremost. Yeah, right? like nobody wants to have an injury that will change the shape of your season in the preseason. Is it probably more about that than the paranoia? Maybe maybe the paranoia of these coaches is something that we sort of hype up because of just how guarded they seem to be this time of year, and it really is just about injuries. I think the primary motivation is injuries and health, and do you want a guy, what you're going to get, it's risk versus reward, right? Yeah. What are you risking? You're risking their health. What are you risking? You're risking teams getting an idea about what you're going to do 
and and maybe you show someone either a tendency or someone's ability. They're like, oh, we've got to account for that because look at how he got open on that play. Like there's a little bit of risk. I think the primary risk is that of injury. The reward is more time under pressure, right? More realistic simulation, which should make your players more comfortable. And I think most coaches come to the the idea that the risk outweighs the reward. I like the fact that they've done this, and it seems very much out of step with what Pete has done. I was I was in the press box in 2011 when Pete called a timeout with about a minute to go to to try and to try and set up an opportunity for them to to kick a field goal that sent them to overtime that would have sent them to overtime if the Broncos had not pulled one. No, seriously, he did. He settled for a field goal. I was like, go for it. Do not. The last thing you want here is overtime. And they kicked the field goal to tie the score. Now Denver went down and and scored the game winner, so he didn't have to worry about overtime. But he was potentially going to force force an overtime in that situation. Pete's come a long way. This is this is not. I don't think that this is his nature or his preference to sit entire swaths of his team. It might be something forced upon him now, though, too. You have one less preseason game. This is the first year with three. And I'd imagine that it is a lot more difficult to cut your roster down from what you start with 90-plus all the way down to 53 when you are missing one game entirely. Because there are going to be certain games where... Some of your young players aren't going to be perhaps in the best possible position to show what they actually can do for you. So I bet that's part of oh, wow, voice crack. I bet that's part of it too. That you have a lot of guys that you have to figure out and you now have one less sixty minute session to do so. I hope they don't play any of the offensive starters on Saturday. <laughs> I, I hope they hold them out. Without Dwayne that's, Brown, I'm with you. That's 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 my preference. I would like to see them go into that. We'll see if that is what they actually do. And I know people, some people, if nothing else, want a chance to see how the new offenses looks. I'd rather wait until uh, week one to see that. It is Danny and Gallant. It's time for us to get to front page news. This, this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. Let's go down to the farm, Danny. The Mariners have the number one farm system per Baseball America after a midseason readjustment. Going into the year, they had the number two. And this, Danny, comes after two of their prospects graduated. Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert, considering they were considered the worst. DFL. <laughs> DFL. They were, D- they were DFL 2018. What is They th- were the DFL. Dead flipping last. Okay, okay. They were DFL two years ago in Baseball America's prospect rankings, their farm system. Julio Rodriguez is number two. Noel V. Marte jumps to number eight. George Kirby, 11. Emerson Hancock, 50. It's... Impressive, at least on paper, the turnaround that they have had with this farm system in such a short amount of time. You would think it would take a lot longer to do something like this. Now, you hope that it's at the tipping point, right? Because farm systems and farm system rankings don't mean nearly as much until you get to the point where you've got a good team. And then one of the primary uses of farm systems is to acquire better veteran players, right? And we're almost at that point. Not quite, but we're almost at that point. And and hopefully, hopefully we're here at the tipping point where in the future, the Mariners farm system ranking translates to, to ammunition 
for trades to help the big league roster. I, I like I like farm system and I like I, I like the rankings. I like exploring it. But really you want to get to the point where like Houston's done for the past few years. You use a lot of those prospects to go and get guys that help you win titles now. But those four guys you listed, you don't. Right? Those four guys you want to see get to that major league level? I think so. Julio Rodriguez definitely. Marte's still a little ways off. And out of those two pitchers, look, I'm I'm of the belief that there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. That injury can change the trajectory of a high-end pitching prospect so much. I, I don't want to say that those two guys are untouchable because it depends on what you look like next year. It's a good... If, if you have an opportunity to acquire a player that will put you over the top for a championship, you, you make that call if your team is that good. The front page. Whose house? Dog's house. University of Washington pulled down a top 20 ranking in the Associated Press preseason poll. Why? They won the division last year. They were North Division champs. Yeah, but... I North mean, Division champions. I got the T-shirt to prove it. Yeah, I know. And then the COVID outbreak happened. Plus, and plus they you got able to Sam Heward. Sam Heward, the top quarterback recruit on the West Coast, or one of the top quarterbacks. But he's recruits. not the starting quarterback, Danny. That, that I mean, yeah, Jimmy Lake we'll was pretty adamant about that on Friday. That, I'll I'll believe. I will. I will believe that Sam Heward is the number two and, and that Dylan Morris is the entrenched starter once we get to the end of the season and Morris remains atop the, the depth chart. I, I like how Morris looked last year. But I'm not convinced we're not going to see Sling and Sammy before it's all said and done. In fact, I think we might see him early in the season and he might get some opportunities early on. Well, it's hard to get five-star prospects and even if it, this was a lock, no matter what, I think you want to have those guys out on the field so that other guys are going to say, hey, look, I could play here right away and maybe be a part of this program as opposed to going to Ohio State and having to battle my way up the rankings because that's the way things have been going of late for UW, losing out to schools like that. All the things that were said about Dylan Morris Friday by Jimmy Lake Rock were Heward red-shirted. Yeah, but Jake Locker red-shirted. Back in the day, though. We're talking, we're talking uh, old, old-time oh, football. Oh, it's not like football's been reinvented. I don't know, Most man. people that pretend like football is so, so different now, whatever. I think college football is a lot different than it was. I, you know, without ZTF... I do think 20 is a bit high. I don't know where I would necessarily put them, but I, there's a part of me that wonders if any of the schools from the Pac-12 and the top 20 that made it are necessarily in if they were in another conference. You know, this feels like, all right, well, let's put some more Pac- – let's just put a couple of Power 5 schools in at the, bo- the back of the top 25. Look, I hate Oregon, but Oregon belongs in there. I mean, Oregon consistently has one of the top oh, yeah. recruiting classes in the country. Oregon and USC, I I, I buy. But uh, UW, less so, and Utah and Arizona State, 24 and 25. Eh, okay. I don't buy Arizona State. I don't buy Arizona State at all. I think that that's, that, that school's just got the soft gene. Like, they don't have a backbone. <laughs> Like whatever, whatever, wherever the backbone is supposed to be in that program, exactly. It's a fun school that lets everybody in, and is perpetually seen as this. Well, I could go on about Arizona State. <laughs> that is front page news. Let's get the professor in here for the morning drive. John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, the Jacksonville Jaguars released Tim Tebow this morning. Pour one out. A sad, sad moment for our country. <laughs> 
sad, sad moments. So sad. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I'm, a winner. He's a winner, John. Come on. Come on. I mean, it was a <laughs> stupid move to sign him. I mean, what a waste of time. You know, they wasted everybody's time, sold a lot of uh, Tim Tebow jerseys are now totally worthless. He was never, ever going to make that team. And so they play him in the first preseason game. They target him six times. He doesn't catch a pass. I mean, this was an absolute total disaster to bring this guy in. And they bring him in, and thank heavens they were smart enough to realize it's not working. Get rid of this guy. He's 33 years old. He's never played tight end. He was a bad quarterback when he was a quarterback. Get rid of this guy. Now, I agree he was never going to make an impact. I don't know if anybody impact. lost. He wasn't going to play. He was never going to make I, the team. You're right. I don't know if anybody lost in this situation. Hear me out. Tim Tebow gets to go live his fantasy camp and imagine like what his athletic career. It's very similar to his baseball career, like something that had very little realistic chance of happening. But he gets to basically have adult fantasy camp for a couple months. Urban Meyer gets to enjoy being around a guy that he loves. We all get to make jokes about it. And ultimately, like, I guess you could argue that the Jaguars, they make money off of selling Tebow jerseys. And God knows why anyone would buy a Tebow Jaguars jersey, but some of them did to get number 85 out there. And then we all get to make jokes about how horrible he was as a blocker. This seems like a victimless crime. I I mean, it was just one of the stupidest moves you can make. Just shows you how Urban Meyer uh, doesn't have a grasp of what it's like to be an NFL head coach. To bring in a guy like that just because he was a neighbor he played with him, all those different <laughs> He's things. He's a champion, John. Two-time national uh, champion. No, enough T-Bow. We, we've subjected the <laughs> yeah, professor like, to and, enough. And plus, list. he couldn't throw in the NFL. He could not. Except for that You're one right. time against the Steelers. No, it was even that. That's broken clocks and blind No, because squirrels. that was like, Troy Palomala doing a blitz that uh, they didn't know he was going to do. And it was, it was wide open in the middle of the field. Enough! Enough! No more Tebow, Paul. <laughs> Returning the page to Deshaun Watson, he was absent from practice again yesterday. I don't know if he's been out there since he was seen cursing at the cameraman. Mm-hmm. Any idea what's going on with him? I mean, nothing at the moment. I mean, again, he's not going to have a, a case until, I mean, his 22 cases are going to be, you know, May through July of next year and no deposition through the 22nd of February of next year. But I guess the big thing right now is that they have assembled a grand jury. The grand jury is reviewing everything. And if they come up with some kind of a charge against him, then it puts the league in a position to say, okay, we are going to do some kind of a uh, uh, commissioner exemplist type of thing. So I guess the biggest thing on uh, Watson right now is figuring out what happens in the grand jury because the grand jury could dictate where this is going to go. If if not, then he's not. I mean, everybody you talk to down in Houston, he's not going to play a down for this team this year. And so he can stay away from the building, all those different things. If they want to go at him for money, I guess eventually they can. But right now he's kind of a non-entity. The 49ers say that they're hoping for Nick Bosa to fully practice next week as he recovers from that season-ending injury that he had last year. John, is he the most impactful return from injury coming into the NFC West this year? Oh, one of them, yeah, no question about it. Because again, he's so good at a, as a player. I mean, he's one of the more he's a guy that you know you can argue can compete for Defensive Player of the Year uh, each year. He's that good, and so uh, you know, and, and when you're coming off an ACL, a lot of times it can be difficult. And this may still be difficult, but at least the fact that he's on progress to be able to come back, that's good. But the thing that concerns me so much about 
the 49ers is their injury situation. You know, they got injuries in the first preseason game. You know, they continued last year. They led the league and missed starts because of injuries. And I, I don't, it's still continuing. John, who do you think is going to end up starting for the New England Patriots? Belichick said he's going to stay mum on it. Mac Jones looked pretty good. Cam Cam Newton did not throw the no. ball downfield much. Who do you think ends up the starter there? I think they'll start the season with Cam Newton, but you kind of get the feeling that uh, I don't know how long they're going to stay with him. Because, again, I mean, you, you look at uh, Cam Newton, and I know that uh, talking to people back in New England, yeah, he has in practice thrown some long passes, but not a lot of them. I mean, I just think with his shoulder problems, his hip problems and all that, I mean, I just think his body's just almost done. And if that's going to be the case, Mac Jones comes in there. He's efficient. He throws the ball well in the middle of the field, which is part of the uh, Joshy McVoy McDaniel offense. And, uh, you know, at some point, I think he's going to claim the job, and it may be earlier than sooner, but I still think they want to enter the season you know, with Cam Newton as a starting quarterback. This may be another episode of Captain Hindsight, John, but uh, Jimmy Johnson said it would have taken his whole draft board, but he could have made a trade-up to get Peyton Manning for the 1998 NFL draft. For context's sake, they were a wild-card team, his Miami Dolphins, who he was the head coach of, in 1997. They picked 19th, and they ended up trading back to 29th. Do you think that actually would have been possible that any team would have, for Peyton Manning, decided to take an entire draft class in exchange for that first overall pick? No, because I think it takes two to make a, a trade, and I, I can't imagine that uh, the Ursay family would endorse any kind of a deal that would not take Peyton Manning because he was considered to be that good. And so, sure, I mean, teams could talk about moving up to get him, but you can't get him. Yeah, you can move up number two and maybe get Ryan Leaf, but it's like, uh, no, I don't, I don't see any human way there was going to be any kind of a, a trade for Peyton Manning. It's kind of how so many teams were going to draft Russell Wilson, right? Yeah, like yeah. So many teams were just about to draft Russell Well, he lasted all the way to the third round. But yeah, everybody was lining up to draft him. Once, once it all gets said and done, people have a lot of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Michael Kendricks playing for the 49ers. How much football do you think he has left in him? Mm, I think there's enough. I mean, I think that uh, I mean, he was a, a good player, certainly, when he was here. And I think that uh, you know, he, you know, he got his case settled. He spent one day in jail as far as you know the uh, uh, penalty for that fraud uh, case that he had against him. But I think there's some football left in him. And certainly when you look at the uh, 49ers, I don't know how much uh, they need an outside linebacker, but I think that he can help. I will always cherish the $100 that Jim Moore had to pay me because Michael Kendricks was available uh, mm-hmm. for training camp that year because Jim was convinced he was going to be in the Hooskow, yeah. and he was not. It's no. a very satisfying bet payoff, John. That was good. you got to like that. Professor, we appreciate it. We will talk to you tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. That is John Clayton. Uh, you can follow him on 710sports.com. You can also hear his afternoon update with Wyman and Bob. Our training camp coverage presented by Precore Home Fitness. Jared Kelnick is out of the slump. Does that mean the season is a success? We'll discuss that next on Danny and Gallant. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. It's been quite the turnaround for Jared Kelnick. Since the start of August... He's done quite well and continued that hot play Saturday night right after Luis Torrens went yard against the Toronto Blue Jays. The 0-1. Swing opposite field. 
High fly ball. Way, way back and back to back. Jacks into the Toronto bullpen. Kelnick six. Six three Mariners. The floodgates are opening up for the Mariners here in the seventh against Richards. Danny, when we were first talking about bringing Jared Kelnick up, one of the things that you constantly brought up was that he's going to go through a slump, and it's a matter of how he handles the first slump. The first slump he was not able to get out of before being sent down to Tacoma, but he came back up, and the slump continued a little bit after he came back up to the major leagues. But now all of a sudden he's playing at a pretty remarkable clip for a young 21-year-old player. Right now he's playing at sort of like a league average perspective, right? The production you're getting out of him for the last two to three weeks, you're like, it's, it's, it's good. It's not, it's not sub-replacement level. It's not like, oh my gosh, he's a young guy working through things. He's not tearing the cover off of the ball. But he's, he's playing. You would not need to replace him in the lineup. Whereas when he first got up, that was, you, you, you were going through the growing pains, right? You were hoping that the, the struggles now would pay off later. These are incredibly positive signs for him because the question wasn't, is he going to absolutely mash from the moment he comes up? The question was, how is a guy that who is seen as, as, a, as close to can't miss as you get for an outfield prospect, when he runs into trouble, how is he going to deal with it? And the answer is he's learned to deal with it. I think that's an incredibly positive development. I, I'm really encouraged by what's happened with Jarrett. You still see the moments where he's so angry after failure. That's probably something that's going to continue. I'm not mad about the anger. I'm like, not either. You... I'm not either at this point because I, I thought, okay, that's something we're going to have to see entirely removed from his repertoire. But I, I think what's been really striking, Danny, is the change in his patience of late. And you saw it Friday night with the walk-off walk. But after the half month of July that he came back, he struck out 22 times and he walked just five times. You see that and you're like, oh boy, the strikeouts are just going to be a big problem for him. But over the last 15 games, he's struck out nine times and he's walked eight times. The eye has gotten better and maybe this is just a brief two-week stretch. It's only been essentially two weeks. But that to me has jumped out maybe more than anything, including his actual production. He was certainly having an issue with left-handers and specifically left-handed breaking balls. Like that was that 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 was murder for him. He he has gotten better. I I'm not sure if it's his eye so much as understanding wh- which pitches he can swing at. Right, like you only the 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 pitcher's goal is to get the batter to swing at a pitch that is outside of the strike zone. Like that's if you could boil it down to a simple, I, I want him to swing at a pitch he has less chance of hitting. And Jared was was fishing for those sort of things, so. He's he's become he's he's refined his pitch selection and the pitches that he is swinging at he's 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 able to do something with instead instead of chasing things so I I think that that you probably right in narrowing it down of pitch selection pitch selection is the thing that has improved the most and that's really true for most look the whole goal of pro- prospect development is to push a player to the point of failure like that that's that's how the system works. Push him to the point where he fails. Let him sit there for a while until he starts beating that level, and then you push him to the next level. Kelnick, the way he rocketed through, and the fact that there was no minor league season in 2020 meant that he didn't experience much failure. So when he he sort of hit that point, so the major league level, and that's tough. I'm I'm encouraged to see how he's been able to make those adjustments. And he talked to us about a, an alteration of sort of standing more upright, 
to improve his vision on the ball so he wasn't so he wasn't swinging over the top or swinging under breaking pitches to improve how he was seeing the ball. I love that conversation that we had with him there too because it was another moment in the interview where we asked him about how the clubhouse is doing after the trade and he said, "Look, yeah, at first there were some issues, but we moved on." And then he was went out of his way to compliment Joe Smith and the kind of veteran presence that he's brought there. And that, to me, is a veteran savvy. I'm dealing with the media kind of move to bring up a specific person who's been brought in to compliment that person. So over the last two weeks, Danny, he's batting 250 with a 351 on base percentage. He's slugging 521 with three home runs and two doubles. He has an OPS of 872 over those two weeks. Over the entirety of the season, if you compare that to any of the Mariners' numbers, that's higher than every single player on the Seattle Mariners. Now, it's, again, a two-week stretch, but that is higher than every single other guy because most of them are hitting like at the high seven nine or OPS-wise 799 or so. But that's not successful for Kelnick, right? Like, if he hits 250 in his career, that's going to be a huge bummer. Yeah, I agree. Like, the, the, I agree. like the, last, the last two weeks is not, okay, he's arrived. So the, the last two weeks is progress. What defines a successful rookie season then? Because we went into it and we set our own expectations, and then obviously the first month that he had where he was just bad happened. After that, okay, you know, that's going to affect your numbers no matter what at the end of the season. Like that's something that's going to be really difficult for him to completely put in the rearview mirror, at least as we take a look at the yearbook of this season. Hey, what's the numbers? Oh, yeah, he's probably not going to be batting anything higher than 200, I would say, right? Like maybe at the high water mark. You want to see him get better. You want to see him get better. And you don't want to give in to the, the temptation that some people have to make a snap judgment and to say, oh, this is it. This is all we're going to get. And to draw a conclusion on his 22-year-old based on his first four or five hundred at bats in, in, in Major League Baseball. Or to think that, well, he's still got something left as value. We should probably get out of it now because he hasn't shown it. That's not how player development works. So the goal is to see improvement over him and to resist the temptation to jump to a conclusion about what he is based on an incredibly limited sample size in which, given his age, in all honesty, we should have expected him. Maybe not an 0 for 42 slump, <laughs> But we should have expected struggles. That should have come as no surprise. In some ways, that might end up being a long-term benefit because if Jared Kelnick began this year feeling that this franchise had held him back, had kept him in the minor leagues, had not brought him up last year out of a desire to control his service time, the way he's played and the struggles that he's had at the plate this year should disabuse him of that notion. Now, it shouldn't make him think that, like, okay, I'm happy. But if if the idea was, hey, they robbed me of a chance to do this sooner, you're like, well, okay. You could say that when he was first brought up, he wasn't ready for the major leagues because right. he, he, he wasn't. He had to get sent back down. So long term, I hope that might actually be uh, something that improves the relationship with the team. But, yeah, this is a successful year because he's getting better. And we're not jumping to a conclusion at this point with a month and a half left in the season calling it a success. Because I think overcoming that big failure, even though it's only been a brief amount of time, I think that is going to be massive for him going forward. And to what you just said a moment ago, too, about him going through that and maybe a relationship with the team being a little bit better (laughs) because of the way that they handled things. This text is interesting to me. 710-710 of the Mac and Jack's Brewing Company text line. It almost seems like the Mariners brought Kelnick up quicker than they wanted to to humble him out. Like they knew he'd have a slump. I mean, he was complaining before first being brought up. Whatever they did, unintentionally, they put an important Seahawk-like chip on him. 
no, no, no. That's that's insane. Nobody wanted him to tear the cover off of the ball more than the Mariners when he was brought up. If he was hitting 420 right now and he was piping hot because he hadn't been brought up last year, no one, no one in the Mariners would be like, oh, oh man, we should have left him in the minor leagues. Look. Everybody would have wanted him and signed up for him being a phenom from the jump, but and that th- didn't happen. Do you think they th- thought he would be right no, out of the way? No, that's why he wasn't in the major leagues to start the season. No, of course they didn't think that. That's why they didn't bring him up last year, because they're like, yeah, he's probably not ready yet, and they were right. To this texter's point, they did bring him up quicker probably than they would have liked to, right? Don't you think that they maybe would have pushed it back a little bit further? What was the incentive for keeping him down? Ah, I thought that he needed to get like a set amount of at bats against the lefties, right? That was the that was the thing that they were looking to do. And of course he had that one week where he looked so good. But I mean they did bring him up after what, like a week at AAA? I mean they yes. did bring him up really quickly. It felt like they expedited the process for some reason, a reason that I don't think we're ever gonna f- necessarily find out the answer to. Well, to see if you'd sink or swim. To see, like, okay, you, you say that you're ready, you feel that you're ready, we'll see. But once he came up, the Mariners were not like, well, yeah. we'll watch him get his humble pie now. They were hoping as much as everybody was that he was going to be a phenom. Yeah, that's a that's a Kevin Mather move. I'm not sure that's necessarily anybody left in the Mariners organization. 710 ESPN Seattle, it's Danny Agalot. Up next, we're going to welcome aboard one of the newest Seahawks. A guy who played for the San Francisco 49ers and a guy who's got to be a big boon for this defense if they're going to take any steps forward this coming season. Kerry Hyder joins us next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Going back to Seahawks training camp, our coverage there brought to you by Precore Home Fitness, and we're really excited right now on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. We've got Seahawks new defensive lineman, Kerry Hyder, is with us. Kerry, first of all, welcome to Seattle. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us this morning, man. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. How is training camp going? You're, you're a veteran, so you've been through this before. Are we at the dog days of training camp, or is it too nice out here by the lake to really feel all worn down by these, these practices? Uh, you know, it's a grind, you know, but uh, Coach Kerr does a great job of taking care of us. And, you know, you can't miss the scenery. It's a, it's a great place to practice and a great place to be. So uh, it's definitely making it go by easy. The episode of Hard Knocks that I watched last week, Kerry, I, I was struck by how annoyed Micah Parsons was by the fact that during the preseason game he was sitting off to the side. How are you feeling sitting off to the side in this game that you saw this past Saturday? Uh, it's a little mixed, mixed bag. You know, you get anxious because, like, you see your teammates out there balling and playing, so you want to help them out. But, uh, you know, as an old player, you kind of be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of kind of enjoy it a little bit. But, uh, you know, whenever your, your, your brothers are out there fighting, you know, you can't help but want to be out there with them. Yeah, you're, you're going to get plenty of opportunities to play. I, I'm excited to, that it's getting saved for some more, more meaningful opportunities in the regular season. You don't need to go through the, the, the preseason rigmarole, carry. I understand, you know, uh, just, you know, being, uh, I guess not older, but an older vet at this time, you know, you, you get take advantage of those days. But, uh, like, I, I've kind of built a career off, you know, preseason games. So, uh, you know, I kind of get an itch when I'm watching those guys play. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to you about the way that you built your career because you came into the league as, a, as an undrafted free agent out of Texas Tech, and you're someone that worked to establish yourself and have built a long career out of that what do you think's been the secret? Like, what what has allowed you to to go from that point where you were playing for a job to establishing a, a career and earning your earning your way as a vet here in the league? Uh, I think I think effort. You know, uh, I think that's the only thing I could control when I was playing is my effort. So, uh, 
you know, I just, you know, control what I can control and just try to stack good practices and good, good games on top of each other. And I was able to keep going. You know, it's a, it's a blessing I've made it this far, and I don't take it for granted. I'm glad that Danny brought up that you're a Texas Tech guy because I think Texas Tech people, having lived in Texas for a bit, are the most fun people in <laughs> Texas. But uh, a follow-up to this, you're one of a couple of ex-San Francisco 49ers that are now on the Seahawks, and it's not just DJ Reed who came aboard midway through last year, but also Akella Witherspoon comes in. I imagine that's got to put a pretty big chip on your shoulder, especially with how productive you were for San Francisco last year. Um, you know, I, I don't put that much thought into it. You know, they gave me an opportunity to play, and uh, and I was able to have a great year, and now I'm here with Seattle. I don't. It's a division rival now. I, I don't hold too many grudges to worry about that kind of thing, man. I wouldn't. I wouldn't give them that, that kind of, you know, give my mind out to that many people. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, and I, I'm happy that I'm here, and I'm happy I'm somewhere where they want me. Robert Saleh, who is your defensive coordinator in San Francisco, is somebody that's got a, people like him a great deal around here because he was on Pete's staff, and he had he had commented. Our producer Maura Dooley told me this. He had commented that Chris Kosurik, who's the D line coach there in San Francisco had had a man crush on you. And so I looked up Kosurik and I was like, oh, I remember Chris Kosurik because I was at the Senior Bowl one year when in covering different players and he was down there coaching the defensive line. He is a loud, energetic man. Uh, definitely, man. He, uh, he brings the energy to practice every day. And uh, the good thing about him, uh, he's the same guy every day. So, uh, you know, it's what you expect when you see him. It was so funny. He was out to the players. He's like, get out there and make yourself some money. Come on. And you've got, you've got a position coach now in Clint Hurt, who is also quite loud and demonstrative. Is, 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 that, is that a kind of type of style, coaching style that you respond to? Um, I'm just, I respond to coaches that's, that's coaching. You know what I mean? Uh, I try to take coaching wherever it is. And uh, Coach Hurt's a wonderful coach, man. And I just see him just climbing the ranks, man. It's very seldom you be around a D-line coach that uh, – that knows everything about the defense, coverage, D-line play, everything. So, uh, you know, for my game, it's going to take it to a whole nother level of being around someone like Coach Hurt. You excited a lot of people when you said that you model your game after Michael Bennett, who, of course, was so successful here. What about his game was so attractive to you when you watched him? Oh, uh, well, Mike wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the strongest, but he was just highly productive, you know, uh, when I'm watching tape, I, I try to watch guys that that's similar to me in body type. He doesn't, you know, do me no justice to watch the, you know, the Von Millers and the four 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 guys of the world, you know. So to be able to have someone like Mike to be able to watch and kind of model my game after, you know, it, it definitely helped me throughout my career, especially the year I got to play with him in Dallas. It was, uh, you know, definitely kind of like, you know, you know, playing with, you know, someone you've been watching your whole life. So that was exciting for me. What's your guys' defensive line room like right now? Because I'm sure that you're still getting to know the guys, and there's a couple mm-hmm. of Carlos Dunlap. This is going to be his first full year with the team. What, what's that room like right now? Man, it's a lot of support. You know, uh, it's a lot of competition. You know, we're working every day trying to get better, trying to make each other better. But uh, it's a fun group to be around. We, we laugh, we joke, but the most important thing is we work well together and we, uh, we push each other. One of the interesting things about defensive line play, it seems like these days, too, is that you, you just see so many guys rotated in and out, in and out. And I'd imagine it's really important to have that trust in some of these guys that are around you because someone's going to be not only, you know, selling in for perhaps the person to your left or to your right, but also for you for, er, from time to time. 
Yeah, um, I'm a big believer, I think I said this before, uh, in hitting them with waves, you know, and the more people that we can come, the, the more we can pressure the quarterback. You know, we want to be fresh in the fourth quarter and on, and on those third downs and, you know, having quality depth, you know, which we do have with the, with the, young, with the younger guys. You know, it's, it's going to be a sight to see. So we're still putting together. We're still working. But uh, I just know with, uh, you know, we continue to prepare and continue to work that we're going to make some noise. What's the best feeling for you on the football field? What's the best, like the thing that you do that makes you feel the best? Winning. <laughs> I think winning is the most important thing. Uh, you know, I've, I've only played in uh, one playoff game, so uh, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to win. So uh, I think that's the, the feeling I've been missing the most since I've been playing in the league is just being on a consistent winner. So being here is just it's like a dream come true for me. So winning is number one. Sack has to be number two. Have you, have you, I, ever, have you ever come close to getting an interception or anything? Um, I mean, I would define close, you know, in my head, I <laughs> define close, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, that sounds like you've been pretty close. Then. <laughs> right. No, I, w- I would have to say sack, of course, you know, uh, especially with these mobile quarterbacks out here, when you get your hands on them, man, it's like all the work you put in for the week, you finally, you finally get them, man. It's, it's a great feeling. Who's the most difficult quarterback to track down? Man, but it's Russell, so I'm glad I'm on his side. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at your I'm looking at your career stats here, Kerry. You got a, You got a, You had a fumble return last year for 14 yards. You you've recovered three, but had one return. Did you think you were taking that to the house? <laughs> I really did. You know <laughs> what I mean? I, I, th- I thought I was gonna cut back across the field and <laughs> take it to the house, but uh, I guess uh, whoever pushed me out of bounds had other plans, but. Uh, <laughs> I was. I thought I was out there running like Chris Carson or somebody. Carrie, <laughs> uh, it's really cool to talk to you. We know that you got meetings, and we appreciate you taking a break from your schedule and, and talking to us again. We're really excited to have you here in Seattle. I'm looking forward to watching Thanks, you this season. Uh, thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right, that is Kerry Heider. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We do have four tickets to the August 27th Mariners game that will be given away later in the show. And Brock Heward joins us next.